Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the Book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we approach your word this morning, I just pray that you would speak to us through your truth. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to submit to your truth and that through the power of your spirit that you would mold us and shape us. In Jesus' name, amen. On our trip to Israel over the past two weeks, Kathy and I covered a lot of ground. And then I mentioned this in the Sunday school hour. There's this phrase in the Old Testament you'll find that says, from Dan to Beersheba. And if you look at that on a map, and they use that to basically say that you're talking about all of Israel. And it's not all of Israel, but it's all of Israel that will grow a plant. And we did that. We literally went from Dan to Beersheba. And as we were in Beersheba, Joe Stoll, who is a longtime retired president of Moody Bible Institute, taught our lesson when we were there. And as he was presenting his message, I thought, well, I could turn this into a great Father's Day message. And so that kind of worked in my brain while the two weeks we were gone. And so with that being said, turn with me to Genesis 21. We'll get back on our study of Romans this following week. But Genesis chapter 21, and we're looking at verses 22 through 32. We'll actually look further down in the text, but... Before we get there, let me preface these verses by reminding you where we are at in Genesis 21. In Genesis 15, God reaffirms his covenant with Abram, later to be Abraham. And he tells him that he will have a child with Sarah. And in addition, he will enter into covenant with Abraham, saying that his descendants will possess the promised land. And as he goes on in the following chapters, as we get to Genesis 21, Abraham is in the promised land, and he's entering in a treaty with Abimelech. And as he's entering in this treaty, he brings up to Abimelech that I've dug this well over here and there's a problem. Your people are not honoring that well. So Abimelech recognizes Abraham's ownership of the well. And if you look at verse 29, Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? 
And he, referring to Abraham, said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be a witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. It's a well of oath. Thus they made a covenant of Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Thickel, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree there in Beersheba, and they called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistine many days. Now, what is the significance of this treaty with Abimelech? If you're just casually reading the text, to us it sounds like everyday business, right? People buy real estate, they sell real estate, all of those things. But you have to put it in the context of the covenant that God had with Abraham. Because remember, in that covenant, God told Abraham that he would and his descendants have the promised land. What use is land without water rights? I mean, even today, if I told you, look, I'm going to give you this parcel of land over here. And you can do anything that you want to it. But you can't have water at all. You can't have water. That land's useless. I mean, you can't prepare meals. You can't take a bath, you can't wash your clothes, you you can't do anything. Water rights with land is everything. Now, when you are at Beersheba, and if you look at it on a satellite map, you'll see that to the west of you is the Dead Sea. And Beersheba is actually in the desert, but you're just right on the edge. Below Beersheba is the desert. Got Dead Sea, to the west, you got desert to the south. It's the last stop of anything that has any remoteness of green. And in fact, as you're driving along, you still see shepherds with their sheep, Bedouin shepherds. And if you put all of this in context, Genesis 15 and Genesis 21, what you are seeing in these two chapters is that Abraham's faith in God has just expressed itself in reality. Because God has told him, you will be owner of this land. And then when Abimelech and him enter into treaty, and he goes, the water's yours. Now the land means something, doesn't it? Without water, the land is useless. And so Abraham's faith becomes a reality in his life. And with Abraham's faith being a reality in life, what does Abraham do? Look at verse 33 and 21. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree there in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. Abraham did... What we all need to do. When we recognize that our faith has become reality in our daily life, we need to stop, to stop 
and call on the name of the Lord. How often are we guilty of recognizing that we have just seen God act in our life, answered a particular prayer, solved a particular problem, and then we just go right on? We don't need to do that. We need to do what Abraham did. We need to stop and give praise and glory to God. In addition, Abraham did something else. He planted a tamarisk tree. And when we were there, there were tamarisk trees. And you get different information about how long these things live. In Texas, we have a different word for tamarisk trees. They're called salt cedars. They look a little bit different than our salt cedars, but they're salt cedars. But they have some unique properties. They're an extremely slow-growing tree. And you'll see references of living beyond 100 years. Now, that has some significance. It's often been said that you plant a tree for somebody else. That's true in a lot of ways, isn't it? Normally, when you plant a tree, you are not going to see, especially if you're older, you're not going to see the full fruition of that tree. You're not going to see it reach its maturity. If you think about people that live in homes, renters don't plant trees, do they? There's no benefit. Owners plant trees. So what does Abraham do? Not only does he give praise to God, but he also plants a tree. He's saying, this is for the benefit of the future generations based upon the covenant promise that God has given me. In other words, he's not looking at what just happened in his life for right now. He's not giving a temporary thing. He's also saying, I believe that God's going to do what he told me that he's going to do. And my people will benefit from this planting of the tree. This is emphasized when you think back at that covenant promise back in Genesis 15. In verse 12 of 15, it says, Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. Referring to the exile to Egypt. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall bury it at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. For the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. So when he plants the tree, is he planting the tree for something immediate? No. It's a long ways down the road. And in fact, you can say, since God told Abraham, you're going to die before you see it. You're going to die before you see it. That's a huge step in faith, isn't it? Where he says, I'm going to give praise to God. And I'm going to plant this tree. Because God told me my people will be here 400 years from now. Isn't that amazing? 
It's really amazing when you think that Moses wrote the book. It's one of those things of faith that you look at and you think, that is significant. So this is why with Abraham, Beersheba is a special place. There's still a well in ancient Beersheba. There's a modern Beersheba. You can see it across the highway. There's still a well in ancient Beersheba. It's a special place for Abraham. But it's just not Abraham. It also becomes a special place for Isaac, Abraham's son. Turn with me to Genesis 26, verse 23. It reads, Then he, referring to Isaac, went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants from my servants Abraham's sake. So he, referring to Isaac, built an altar there. And called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Special place for Abraham. Special place for Isaac. Now let's go to Genesis 46. Jacob. Genesis 46, starting in verse 1. So Israel took his journey, referring to Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. All three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Beersheba was a special place. And I think that there are some great spiritual truths for all of us, and especially for fathers on Father's Day. As we look at Beersheba and then we put some modern application to it. First of all, Beersheba is a place of encounter in worship. Beersheba is a place of encounter in worship. You notice all three encountered God at Beersheba and worshiped. It's a place of encounter and worship. We need those places. I remember my freshman year at Baylor. You know how it is your freshman semester. You're all trying to up your game and do college work when you're used to doing high school work. And I had this great history teacher. Taught at Baylor since 57. And in class, he said, do you guys have any questions for me as students? And this one kid raises his hand and says, can you give us some study habits? What should we do? What are some pointers to kind of get us to where we need to be? And Dr. Spain gave, I thought, some really good advice. He says, it sounds silly, but he said, pick a place. I don't care where it is. I don't care if it's a desk, I don't care if it's a couch, I don't care if it's a chair. 
But he said, pick a place that all you're going to do in that chair, if it's in the library or whatever, the moment you sit down in that chair, that is your study place. You're not going to goof off. If you take a break, you're going to get up from the chair. He said, it should create a mindset in you to study. I thought, you know, that's really a pretty good idea. And I think as we think about looking at Beersheba as a place of encounter, and as we think about our worship with the Lord, I think we've become all too casual with how we approach God. And you go, well, there's no Beersheba. But I would argue that, and we're going to look at this in a little bit more individually and corporately, but I would argue corporately, the church is a Beersheba place. If you have the right mindset. Now, I remember when I wasn't preaching and we were young parents and you're trying to get out the door to get to church on time. And sometimes a spiritual mindset is the furthest thing that's going on in your car as you progress to church. But we need to have a mindset of worship as we come to the church. Just as my history professor said, when you come into a place, it should be a place of study. When we were on our trip, one of the other places that we went to was Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was located for centuries before it was relocated to Jerusalem. And as we progressed up the hill, I was trying to put myself in the shoes of the Hebrew. And oh, by the way, surprise, the dimensions that they've uncovered exactly equal the exact same measurements of the tabernacle. Exactly. We know the measurements of the tabernacle. They're in the Bible. They're exactly the same. So as you're progressing up the hill, I was sitting there thinking, the tabernacle's what? Is where God dwells among men. And as we were progressing up the hill, I was thinking, can you imagine, can you imagine that you're there and you're progressing up the hill and you know that God is dwelling in the Ark of the Covenant? It's right there. God's there. You're going up to meet God. I think that's incredible. And while I think that that is incredible, think about what Christ said in Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Why do I have to be blown away about a Shiloh moment when you and I have the capability of experience that every single Sunday as we come together unified in worship, our focus on Christ and knowing that Christ is here in the midst of us. It's wonderful for Shiloh. I'm glad I went. But my friends, he's here. He's here. He's alive. He's here. He speaks to us. And there's something unique about 
joint corporate worship where two or three or more are get together and we're unified in our belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. We too have the ability to encounter God in a unique way in a corporate setting of worship. Secondly, Beersheba was a place of covenant. If you look back at those verses that I just read, God renewed his covenant with all three patriarchs there at Beersheba. You may say, well, that's great, Pastor. That's old covenant. I'm in new covenant. Well, you're right. We are in new covenant. And let's look at what Paul says about the new covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As he contrasts the difference between the old and the new. 2 Corinthians 3.12. It says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And when the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. As we encounter the Lord, as we are in a new covenant with Him, the new covenant says that we will be transformed. And that transformation just isn't when you first recognize God. You're being transformed from the moment that you accept God all the way to your glorification until you stand before Him face to face. Beersheba was a place of covenant, but we too are in a new covenant with the Lord. A new covenant. Lastly, Beersheba was a place of legacy. Was a place of legacy. All three generations, Beersheba became a special place. That got me thinking. On our trip, we weren't the youngest people. There were three couples that were far younger than us. But most everybody was older than us. And as we had dinner at night with other couples, a couple of those conversations involved the graying of the church. That the church, if you look at the average age of a churchgoer, they're getting older. It's a common problem. And you know, anytime you bring up that graying of the church or the aging of the church, then all of a sudden you enter into all of these conversations of what do we need to do? This has been going on now for as long as I've been pastoring, 25 years. And at first it was, well, we need to have modern music. And if we just have modern music, we're going to draw young people. And then the pastor needs to look hip. Now, whenever I say that, everybody always laughs when I say because I'm not hip. And I actually feel sorry for pastors that make their living 
off of pastoring that are my age or older. Because the sad truth is they're being discarded. They're being discarded or they look extremely silly because they start wearing the clothes of a 18 or 20 year old. That's not my life. But we did all of those things. You know, you think about what's going on in the church growth movement. 25 years, pastors have tried to look more hip. Music has tried to be more modern. Unfortunately, preaching has become diminished in its role in the worship service. It's not worked. Now, you may have a group of young people going to that church, but if you think about overall church numbers, the church is in a dangerous place. And you can have all these discussions of, well, what do we need to do? And and in the context that Beersheba is a place of legacy, it got me to thinking about this. And instead of talking about music, or talking about looking hip, or talking about not having a church that looks like a church, which drives me crazy. What the church needs to do is have a serious and convicting conversation. Because if you think about it, what's happened to the church is, is that our children have left the church. Now that's convicting, isn't it? If everyone's children were faithful in their weekly attendance of church that grew up in church, church wouldn't have an attendance problem. That's convicting. It's a lot easier to talk about rock music or pastors that are looking hip. The church needs to be a place of legacy. We read that in our responsive reading. Is that if we are faithful, God will be faithful. Now, we may not see that completely come to fruition. But when you start thinking about, well, we need to do this, or we need to do that, or we need to have this type of program, or we need to do this, the best thing that we could do right now is to look at our children and tell them the importance of them being in church every single Sunday. Now, you may say, I didn't live my life that way. Because we have people that either, for whatever reason, they didn't really get serious about church attendance and Bible study and their spiritual walk until they got older. It's fine. That shouldn't stop you from having the conversation with your children and grandchildren. It shouldn't. And in fact, I believe that you have a powerful testimony. For those that did not walk with Christ until a later point in their life, you have the ability to sit there and go, this was my life before Christ. This is my life with Christ. And let me tell you, by personal experience, it's so much better if you're with Christ. So get into church and get committed to Christ. Don't let that stop. See, that's what the devil wants to do. The devil wants you to shut up. The devil wants to rob you of your testimony. And I don't care if you gave your life to Christ 50 years ago, or you gave your life to Christ last week, you have a testimony 
to your children and your grandchildren. And you may say, well, gee, I don't have any kids. You have nieces. You have nephews. You have friends who have kids. Share your testimony. Because Christianity should be with legacy. For us to sit there and say, I encountered God. Why do you think that Isaac went out to Beersheba? Because he knew his dad encountered God at Beersheba. Why did Jacob encounter God at Beersheba? Because his dad and his granddad encountered God at Beersheba. If you think about any place in the world where you can be a missionary, first start with your own family. Start with your own family. This is where I need to stand. Now, I'm going to make a brief comment. You're going to think it's at first off topic. And there, first of all, let me make this preface with this statement. There is absolutely nothing wrong with looking at your Bible on your iPhone or your iPad. Let me make that statement first. There's nothing wrong with it. But I want to give you some food for thought. And you're thinking, what does this have to do with this this sermon that I'm preaching? And because we were with 100 people. And as we did our studies, it was a mix. iPhone, iPad, Bible. And this relates to our view of legacy. If you were to go into my study, in fact, Kathy came in the study as I was working on my sermon yesterday afternoon, and there's this big, thick Unger's Bible dictionary. It's got all these papers stuffed in it. Kathy said, that's not your book. And I said, no, it's your dad's book. Here's this Unger's Bible dictionary. If you ever look at Kathy's Bible, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You know, notes are stuck everywhere. So here I have this Unger's Bible dictionary with all of these notes just stuffed in it. That's in my study. I have the Bible of my father's dad in my study. I have the Bible of my mother's dad in my study. I have my mother's Bible in my study. I have my dad's Bible in my study. I have the hymnal of Kathy's great-granddad that you turn back to the back and it says, these are the hymns that I want sung at my funeral. You don't get that off of an iPad or an iPhone. And in fact, if we had an electrical emergency, there's nothing left behind. There's nothing wrong with it. But as you think about legacy, isn't it important for your children to have something that has a meaning of your spiritual walk that left behind that they can look and say, this was my mom and dad's belief. This is what they were about. As you know, I'm a car nut. Met a guy on the trip. We're sitting in Israel talking about 
Fords. When you really think about it, all that goes away. Car nut, bass boat, all of our hobbies, whatever your hobby is, it's meaningless. But the legacy of your spiritual belief, that does wonders for future generations. Beersheba had to deal with the well. And as you can see, there's a lot of meaning in that well. And while we don't have a physical Beersheba, we have a spiritual Beersheba. And I was thinking about in John chapter 4, verse 13, as Christ interacts with the Samaritan woman, he says this, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give them will never thirst. But the water that I shall give them will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. My challenge today for all of us, regardless of whether you're a father or not, is to take a look at the offerings of Christ And recognize that that's really the only thing that has meaning that's everlasting. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we just thank you for your truth. And we thank you that you gave your son so that we might have a water that satisfies I pray, Lord, that we would continue to follow you and that we would draw near to you so that we might experience the satisfaction that only you can give. I pray, Lord, that if there is someone listening who does not know you, who's never experienced the peace and the joy that comes through Jesus Christ, that they would repent of their sins that they would accept Christ as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, millcreekchurch.org.